Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel. How could we be? It's the message that you loved us and gave your son for us and have redeemed us from ourselves, from our sin, from your wrath and judgment. You've redeemed us from hell and set us apart, Lord, for glory, for heaven, for your love. Oh God, we praise you. And as we come to think now more about your gospel, we pray that you would make, it, make us even more committed to it. Press it into our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, Happy New Year. New Year, new you. (laughs) I'm still the same old rascal I was on December 31st, but I'm dependent on grace. Uh, If you're new to our church family or visiting with us, uh, at the beginning of each year, we typically have a sermon series that goes through what we call our five M's. Our five M's are our five core objectives as a church, each of those um, beginning with the, as you might have guessed, the letter M. Uh, And today we're going to begin that series in our five M's uh, in a series that I've I've titled, uh, what have we titled it? Anybody know? Have you seen that already? There you go. A real snazzy, creative title, Five Commitments (laughs) for 2020. Now, if you're new to our church, it might be helpful for me to give you just a little bit of history about us as a church. We are, by God's grace, uh, into our fifth year. We'll celebrate five years as a church on April 5, 2020. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. It was said to me the other day, someone, I forgot who I was talking to, but they said, uh, yeah, I heard that you guys got started because you um, broke off from another church, you split another church, and came and said, whoa, 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 that's a lie. <laughs> and they said, a member told me that. I said, they lying? <laughs> no, 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 no. So Anacostia River Church exists as a result of a lot of prayer and a lot of commitment. Right. Years ago, there are folks living in southeast D.C., this part of the city, grew up in this part of the city, who, who started praying that the Lord would uh, raise up another gospel preaching church uh, in the neighborhood to serve the neighborhood. Um, those prayers by folks like Stephanie Muniki, who was one of the original members of this church, who's lived in southeast D.C. for a number of years, or northeast D.C. for a number of years, Stephanie Muniki and lots of others like her. Um, those prayers are part of why we exist. I'll never forget being at a conference, a uh, Gospel Coalition conference, probably about six years ago, just before we were getting ready to start, but we'd announced that we were going to try and plant this church. And uh, after my session, there was a a string of people standing there to ask questions and to follow up on things. And there was a young woman kind of standing uh, in the back, and she kept letting people go before. And she's standing there, and she's kind of misty-eyed. And and I thought, I hadn't preached anything that powerful. I don't know what's going on with her. But, you know, she let everybody pass through. And she came up, and she said, I just want you to know uh, I'm a member at McLean Bible Church but I've been volunteering in community organizations in Southeast D.C. I've been praying for the Lord to do something like this for 10 years. And I just feel like I'm seeing those prayers answered and what he's doing with ARC. We got started because the Lord began to work in the hearts of a number of people in different places at different times to share this vision. 
to plant a, a church in the neighborhood that would partner with other churches in the neighborhood and other organizations in the neighborhood to see, we pray, spiritual and gospel transformation happen uh, in this neighborhood um, among the neighbors that we, we live with and, and with whom we love. Uh, one of the major supporters of us uh, was Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Um, we were sent out with a team of folks, about 58 people, when we began this church, uh, about 28 or so of them, 30 of them, uh, were from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We were former members of that church. That church sent us out not only with those 28 or 30 members, they sent us out with their prayers and their encouragement. And they sent us out collectively those first two years with $200,000. Now, I like them. <laughs> I like them. Amen. That was commitment on behalf of that church. Wasn't a split. So if you've heard that, that there was some kind of split or unhappiness and people broke away to do da-da-da-da, that's not true, beloved. It's not true. The story that hangs over this church is the story that hangs over the Bible of God sending his people to other places around the world, near and far, to spread the gospel. That's why we exist as a church. The first of our five M's is the message of the gospel. What we want to do is to be a congregation of people, individually and collectively, who are committed to sharing the message of the gospel. Now, I'm convinced, and this is the main point of the sermon this morning, let's look at three passages in, in the book of Titus. I'm convinced that what we need is a more thorough commitment to sharing the gospel, a deeper commitment to sharing the message of the cross. And again, by commitment, I do not mean that this is a kind of option. This is something we can opt in or opt out of if we feel like it. It's a matter of faithfulness or disobedience, actually. It's a matter of his lordship in our lives. And so I want to I suggest to us that we need the gospel worked out in our life and in our ministry in three ways. And then we need to be committed to sort of working it out in these three ways so that the gospel is more central to who we are and how we live. So three ways to share the message this morning. Number one, share the message for personal identification. For personal identification. We're going to see that in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Number two, share the message for the church's sanctification. For the church's sanctification. We'll see that in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And number three, share the message for the community's transformation. For the community's transformation, chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. You see, it's this message that defines our identity. It's this message that helps us to grow in holiness. And it's this message that creates the deepest lasting change that we could ever hope for in our neighborhood. And it's commitment to sharing it that makes all the difference. So let's start with that first point. We want to share the message as a matter of personal identification. It's a clumsy way of putting what I think is Paul's introduction in verses 1 to 3. Look there with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by, entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now these three verses is Paul's opening greeting. It's his introduction of himself to the church in this letter. Let me ask you a question. When you meet people for the first time or you correspond with people personally, how do you introduce yourself? When you introduce yourself, do you say, as Paul says here, verse 1, I am a servant of God and sent by Jesus Christ. Now, if that sounds like a weird way to introduce ourselves, it might mean that the gospel is not yet dominant in how we understand ourselves. What do you think is Paul's mindset when he introduces himself in this way? I think it says that Paul's identity is defined by his relationship to God in two ways. Number one, he says it there, that he is a servant to God the Father, we might translate that word servant, slave. He's a slave, a servant to God the Father. And number two, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's think about those two related aspects of his identity. A servant or a slave is someone who lives to fulfill the desires of another. A servant plays close attention to the desires, the wishes, the instructions of his master, of his, of his boss, of his owner. And he pays attention to that so that he might obey it, fulfill it, serve it. Paul says, that's how I am with God. I am a servant of God the Father. I am a slave to God the Father. What God desires, what God instructs, what God commands, what, what God wishes me to do, that's what I spring into action to do. I exist to serve God. And you probably heard it said that... Um, some people don't mind being thought of as servants. They just don't want to be treated like servants. I think Paul is saying here, not only do I think of myself as a servant, but that's how I treat myself. That's how I behave. That's how I guide my life is as someone who is serving God. That's central to who I am. So much so, that's how I introduce myself. Paul, a servant of God. But not only that, notice he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle, as you know, is a word that simply means a sent one, a messenger. He uses it here in his greeting, and there's a unique way in which Paul uses that title. He is a, an apostle in the early church, uh, part of the founding office and governing office of the early church. There are no more apostles in that sense. But actually, the word apostle is a word used fairly commonly in that world at that time. All it means is a sent one, a messenger. In that sense, in that more general sense, we're all apostles. We're all messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all sent with the message of Jesus Christ. We heard it in our call to worship from Matthew chapter 28. The Lord gives the great commission to the entire church. That's not just the text that's used especially for people who feel called to cross-cultural missions. That's a text that hangs over the, the life of every Christian. We are all sent by Jesus Christ with this message. We are all, in that sense, apostles, sent 
here's the question. Do we live our lives like we are sent people? Do we live our lives like we are sent people? Just thought about an illustration for that. When I was a boy, my mom, she worked hard at her job, but at home she worked us hard. It's before the days of remote controls. I can be in the backyard. Ron, come here. I come in the house. I was also raised in that generation, too, where you needed to be close enough to the house that if your mama and your daddy called you, 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 can't, you could come home, right? He, he, Ron, come here. I run in the house. Yes, ma'am? Turn the TV for me. I was a sent one. <laughs> or she'd send me to the store sometimes. Um, send me to the store to pick up something. This is way back in the day before she quit smoking, for example. She, she sent me to get her a pack of uh, pale male cig- uh, cigarettes. That's way back in the day, right? It's way back in the day. Unfiltered. And uh, unfiltered. <laughs> and she sent me to the store. She said, now this is what it costs and this is what I give you and bring my change back. And, and if I was gone too long and came back, this is what she would say. Didn't I send you to the store? I ain't sending you out there to talk to your little friends. I ain't sending you out there to be playing basketball with my change in your pocket. Where my change? I was a sent one. This is, this is what Paul has in mind here in a much more serious way. Jesus has given him a message and sent him. Go straight to the store and come back. Go straight to the nations and come back. Go straight to the church and preach this message and come back. You have an assignment. You have a duty. You have a message to deliver. Go with it. And the question is, is do our lives reflect that kind of sentness? Is that our purpose and our identity? Think about your life over 2019. Think about the plans you have made for 2020. Whether you've written them down or just mentally reflected on it. Did last year and the plans we have for 2020, do they bear the mark of being sent people? Is there anything about our resolutions, anything about our goals that would suggest to us or suggest to people who do not know us but just read our list of resolutions that, oh, this person right here has been sent by Jesus Christ? This person right here serves God, that they are committed to serving and being sent. Listen, beloved, living as servants and living as sent ones will not happen by chance. Doesn't happen by osmosis. We must be intentional, which means we have to, A, actively think of ourselves, our identity, as servants and sent ones, and B, we must have an actual plan for living that way. That's what commitment looks like. So we, we want to actually spend 2020 intentionally developing this identity. We are servants of God the Father, and we are sent ones of Jesus Christ with this message. Now, what's the message? Notice Paul's audience and message. He says that uh, he is an apostle for the sake of God's elect. Like this. It means Paul's life belongs to God, but it benefits the elect. 
elected all those God has chosen for salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection does not make salvation possible. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes salvation actual. It accomplishes our redemption. It succeeds at rescuing us from God's judgment, us being the elect, those whom God has called to himself before the worlds began. They shall hear this message and believe. Christ's work will be effectual for them. Paul says, this is who I'm I'm living for the sake of. And he sums up his message there in that little two-word phrase, the truth. (laughs) I like that. Christianity is the truth. We're talking about true things here. Not relative things, not subjective things. We're talking about absolute truth in this message. I know we live in a culture that that takes such absoluteness, such certainty as arrogance, but, but nothing can be more loving than to be firm about the truth when the truth that you're talking about has to do with heaven and hell, life and death, judgment and forgiveness. That's not the place to get squishy. It's also not the place to get arrogant and unkind and judgmental, but it is not the place to relinquish our grip on the truth because that truth determines eternity for all people. Paul says, now, I've been sent with this message, which he calls the truth, and we'll unpack it a little bit later, but notice the qualities of this message here in the first part of Titus. This truth, number one, accords with godliness. Now, an accord is more than a Honda. Something accords with something, it means there's an agreement with it. It fits together. So this message, which is the truth, it fits together with godliness. It accords with godliness. Godliness is a godlike life. So this message, wherever it is preached and wherever it, it is believed, it works itself out in, it produces godlike character and godlike behavior. We'll say more about that in a moment. Notice the second thing. This message, this truth, carries with it the hope of eternal life. The word hope means confident expectation. So those who have the knowledge of the truth are confidently expecting the promise of eternal life. They have a kind of assurance that that what has been offered in the gospel, a life that never ends, a life without sin and death and sickness and blemish, that that life is coming and it is theirs. See, truth produces hope as well as godliness. Notice number three, this message, this truth, it comes from God. And I love this, notice, who never lies but promised it before the ages began and manifested it in the preaching of Paul, in the preaching of the apostles, in the scriptures. This is good news, beloved. This truth is backed by God's promise. And God is one who never lies. In fact, Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God 
to lie. Anytime God tells you something in his word, believe it. Write it down. Make it plain. Take it to the bank. What God says in his word will come to pass. Every promise that he has made, he will keep. In fact, every promise of God is, the Bible says, yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled all that God has promised to the world, and the message that we carry is a message backed by that promise from a God who never lies. That's the kind of message we ought to want to carry. That's the kind of message we ought to want to get excited about. This is not one message among many. We're not not competing for some sense of credibility and legitimacy in a world of messages. There are all kinds of messengers and messages out there, but there's only one which is the truth, and there's only one which is backed by a God who promised and who never lies. That's ours. Paul says, I got letters in my bag. I got truth to carry. And you and I, beloved, we are servants of God if we are Christians. And we are sent ones of Christ if we are Christians. Sent with the truth that matches up with godliness and produces hope and is backed by the promise of God. So the main thing for us to do if we're going to get the message deeper into our souls personally, the main thing for us to do is to get our identities correct. To let the gospel shape how we think of ourselves. To let it define us. To let it refine us. And to let it guide us in, in who we are and what we do. So let's make that a question to our everyday selves. Here's the question. Are you thinking of yourself as God's servant and Jesus' sent one? Wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, look at yourself. Ask yourself that question in the mirror. Am I a servant of God and a sent one of Christ? Or if that's settled for you, make it a declaration in the mirror. I am a servant of God and a sent one of Christ. And then at some point in the morning, if you're like most of us, you're going to look at your calendar for the day. Ask that question again. Does my calendar reflect the fact that I am a servant of God and a sent one with a message of Jesus Christ? Let's make it that daily until we, like Paul, without thinking, as if just normally breathing, We regard ourselves as servants of God and sent ones of Christ. And it is do that to the point where it may not be weird for us to imagine introducing ourselves to other people as a servant of God and a sent one of Jesus Christ with the message of the gospel. And beloved, let's get that in us. And along with that, let's let's be confident in who we are. I don't have time to linger on this, but in verse 3, notice what Paul says. Paul says that God promised um, this truth before the ages began, but that it was manifested, how? Through his preaching, right? And now it's been set down for us in the Scripture. 
He, he understood that his preaching was a manifestation of God's word. And beloved, anytime we preach or share the message of the Bible and the message of the cross accurately, we preach and share not only for God and for Christ, we preach and share not only the word as if it were the word of God, but the actual very word of God. This is why Luther called the church the mouth house of God. This is why we always understood that the Bible speaks. God is talking through his people, begging the world to be reconciled through us. And let's have faith that this word spoken will save. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, God sends forth his word like rain to water the earth and his word will not return to him void, but will accomplish what he sent it forward to do. Let's be confident of who we are. Be confident of the message. Share it in faith. Number two. Let's share the message for the church's sanctification. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So in verse 1, the gospel is shaping, or chapter 1, excuse me, the gospel is shaping Paul's identity. In chapter 2 here now, when it comes to the gospel again, the message, it is shaping the, the character of the church. It is promoting holiness or sanctification in the church. Let me give you just a brief definition of sanctification or holiness. It has two parts. It means to be set apart from all the sort of other things in the world, to be set apart as belonging only to God. And then there's a second aspect. That first aspect is positional sanctification. But then there is progressive sanctification. That's the way in which we progress in that holiness. We grow in Christ-likeness. We grow in moral purity. We we grow in obedience to God. And so we are meant across the course of our lifetimes to, to grow in conformity to Jesus. The question is, how does that work? The answer is in verses 11 to 13. Notice first in verse 11, the phrase, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Grace is a word that means kindness. It's a kindness from God, which we do not deserve. That kindness is not invisible. It has appeared. Well, it appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. and manifested itself in his person and his ministry. And, and, and it, that grace that has appeared in Jesus Christ, it brings salvation to all people. It brings a, a rescue plan to everyone who's in danger. And beloved, the whole world is in danger, in danger of God's judgment because the whole world has given itself over to sin. 
Now, none of us are as bad as we could be, but don't let that trick us into thinking that we're good enough to earn our way into heaven. We are bad enough to be condemned to hell, every one of us, but God has a plan. He's shown us his plan in his son. His son came into the world, took on our flesh, and brought through the cross, his death and resurrection, in atonement for sin, has brought into the world salvation for anyone who would believe. But that's the beginning of the Christian life. That's how it starts. What happens after that? Well, that same grace in verse 11 teaches us or trains us. Did you notice that in verse 12? Trains us to do three things. And here's how we grow in sanctification. Basically, here's how the message of the gospel is not only something that we believe that brings us to Christ, but something that continues to work in our life to make us more like Christ. Here we go. Three things. It trains us to say no to sin and sinful desires. You see it there? Verse 11, verse 12 training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, the word renounce is stronger than the word say. So I said it trains us to say no. But this is a strong no. This is, this is an adamant no. This, this is, we might say, a rebuke. You hear people say sometimes, I rebuke that. Cat come to me talking about LeBron's the greatest ever. I rebuke that. I rebuke that. I rebuke that. See, that's renouncing something, you see. And here, praise God. <laughs> and, and here we're renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. You remember in chapter 1 where we're told that this truth conforms to godliness? It produces godliness? Well, now notice now what we then have to reject is ungodliness, the ways in which our lives might be unlike God. We can't settle with that. We have to reject that. We have to renounce that with the strongest no that we know how to say. And here's where the church struggles so often in its, in its progress and sanctification. We got soft no's for ungodliness. We got, no, not right now. I don't feel like it. I'm doing pretty good today, so I want today. Man, we got sin in our pockets like now and later. A little bit now, a little bit later. But we're called now here to renounce ungodliness, to be done with it, to break up with it, to, to draw a line in the sand and to say no, and to move back away from the line. We need an adamant no. And here's the thing. It's God's grace in the message in Christ that teaches us that. The more we meditate on the gospel, the more we meditate on Jesus, the more we meditate on the salvation that he has accomplished for us personally, the more we ought to be fueled to say this strong no to ungodliness. But also worldly passions. Our behaviors... It's not the deepest part of the problem. The deeper part of the problem is our desire. Any sin problem we have springs up out of a desire problem where we don't desire God, but we desire that sin, right? And so the, the most effective place to fight against sin is at the level of desire. 
If you let yourself want to, you will find yourself doing it. But if you kill the want to, there'll be no impulse to do it. And so Paul says, now here, this message of the gospel is so effective in its working where it is really shared. It is so effective in its working that it digs down into the heart beneath the roots of desire and it digs out the weed. That's what we want. We don't want just behavior modification. Okay, modify your behavior if you're sinning. But don't stop there. Do the work, let the gospel do the work, let the spirit do the work of digging down into the desire. Why was I behaving that way? And pluck up every worldly passion that keeps us from conforming to Christ. See, in the church, we got to stay on the gospel because it's the gospel message that helps us to grow this way. To say no to the things that we ought to say no to. But notice now, there's a yes too. Trains us to say yes to self-control, uprightness, and godliness. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control comes, notice in this text, from believing the message in verse 11 and having the Holy Spirit give us power now to master our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. Self-control is a little talked about virtue in our culture. But self-control is absolutely essential to the Christian life. Why? Because the flesh wants sin. And sin brings forth death. And as we saw in Romans chapter 8, if we live by the flesh, we will die by the flesh. So we have to put the flesh to death, and that means self-control, the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Grace teaches us self-control, but grace also teaches us to say yes to uprightness, to righteousness, to to moral um, purity. Or we could say it teaches us to be just. Teaches us to be upright, upstanding, just people individually when we're alone and, and in society, in the church with other people. To stand up for what's right and good and true and lovely and fair. Gospel brings us into a lifestyle that here is called uprightness, and in the next word is called godliness. Here we go again. Paul, three times, each time he has mentioned the gospel thus far in this letter, he comes in some fashion to this issue of godliness. So, you, so we should be thinking at this point, the goal of the gospel in the life of the Christian and the church is to produce in us a godlike lifestyle. That's what he's after. He's not merely after our salvation. Once he saves us, he's after also our being transformed into his own character and his own likeness, which is called godliness in this text. It's another word that you don't hear much in Christian conversation anymore. Old saints used to talk about godliness. At least old saints I knew. And used to use the categories of ungodly and godly. We need to recover these words. These are good Bible words. These are good clarifying words. These are words that go in a nice way to the heart, right? 
So listen, the things that we have to think our way through in this world, the tough decisions that we have to make, or maybe the battles that we have in sanctification and growth and, and the battles we have against sin, those are not fundamentally tactical conversations. They're not fundamentally about getting this or that strategy down, getting this or that how-to thing down. Fundamentally, most fundamentally, those are conversations about the heart and what the heart desires, and how the heart is formed, and whether it is formed in this thing that we are here calling godliness. Whether it loves and desires a life that looks like God, and whether the heart thinks of that life as beautiful. Because there's some things, beloved, when you're talking about just the black and white of the Bible, that lie in a gray area. That may not be sin, but when you put it under the lens of godly or ungodly, you start to see it a little bit differently. You can watch that movie. That's probably Christian freedom to do that. And you may have a conscience that will allow you to do that. But you sort of zoom back and ask, is it godly? Does it promote a godlike life? You get a different answer to it. And so our tactical conversations are sometimes distracting us from the heart conversations we need to be having. And it's the gospel that's driving and driving and driving and driving at the heart so that out of the heart, their mouth speaks. Out of the heart comes righteousness and uprightness and godliness and self-control. See, our hearts weren't just a problem to us when we were sinners. Our hearts continue to be problems to us when we're saints. And we continue to need the message of the gospel to dig down deep in it. Third thing, notice that this grace trains us or teaches us to wait for Jesus. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. From time to time, beloved, the truth is we, we are infants, aren't we? And all infants need to be trained in how to wait. Babies don't come with that software. Babies, they, they do stuff on demand, right? And they expect you to do it on demand. You don't do it on demand, they get louder, right? Because they've got it reversed. They don't think you're servants of God. Babies think you're servants of them, right? And it is at the heart of training as a parent to teach our children the secret of delayed gratification. No, not now. Wait. You can't have that before dinner, after dinner. No, you do your chores first. Then you can play. We are in all these ways practically teaching our children, if we're good parents, the, the sort of secret of maturity, which is to deny yourself to wait and wait for the better thing. The Christian life has that element in it too. We, we don't get all the goodness that God has promised us right now. We, we are not, beloved, we are not ever, ever, ever going to be able to live our best life in this world. Amen. In this world. No, no shade to the book or the author. That's just true. But there's so much in the Christian world today that teaches precisely the opposite. Not just that guy, there's a whole bunch of guys on TV and selling books and all that good stuff who are teaching you that you don't have to wait. Get your breakthrough. Now, the good part of that teaching 
is that it does teach us to have faith and to have hope. Don't throw that away. Let's throw out the baby with the bathwater. And some of us more bookish people, we don't really live with faith or hope. We live with intellect. We need to learn from my brothers and sisters who are teaching us how to live with faith and hope. That's the good part. The bad part of that is anytime we are hearing teaching that creates in us an impatience with God or an insistence with God that the thing that I say would be good needs to be delivered now, you, you better believe that is not from God, who is Lord and sovereign and Savior, and who knows better than we what is good for us. And when it's good for us to have it, if at all. Now, what Paul says here is the message of the gospel does something. It it gives us a different happiness. It says that we are waiting for our blessed hope. The word blessed could be translated happy. We're waiting for our happy hope. Our happiness now, by definition in this text, really isn't in this world. Our happiness right now is living somewhere else. It's living at the right hand of God the Father in glory. Our happiness now, our great hope is summed up in this. Jesus is coming again. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you've ever been sort of questioning about whether or not the Bible really teaches that Jesus is God, there it is right there in the text, black and white, a glorious appearing of our God and Savior. Who is he? Jesus Christ. When he comes now, that's the fulfillment of our happiest, highest, holiest hope. That's why we pray, come Lord Jesus. The message teaches us that he is coming. The gospel ain't done. There's a kingdom yet to be fulfilled. There's a king yet to return. And the gospel teaches us to orient ourselves to that hope and to wait for it. To abide. To look for its coming. That's what we need for our sanctification. To look up away from ourselves and out to Jesus' coming. And to be taught while we wait to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to self-control, uprightness, and godliness. And it is the message of Christ and the person of Christ who produces that in our hearts, who produces that sanctification. Now, a successful 2020 for ARC must include growth in godliness. Everything else is either a compromise or a cop-out. If we aren't growing in godliness, if we aren't aiming to grow in godliness, if we're not praying for growth in godliness, in holiness, in sanctification, we're not really sharing the message. We're not sharing the main point of the message. We're not sharing the the, the workings of the grace of the message. We're just toying around with the message. But the point of the gospel is to not only save us, us, but to make us like Christ. And so the point of the Christian living and the point of Christian fellowship is to likewise promote conformity to Christ. Uh, Growth and sanctification has to be our agenda this year, beloved. We need to be awakened to that and intentional about that and committed to that because you don't drift toward holiness. None of us do, pastor included. We must seek holiness. 
Charles Spurgeon put it this way. In proportion as a church is holy, in proportion to the degree that a church is holy, to that proportion will its testimony of Christ be powerful. Our testimony of this message will lack power, convincing power, if our corporate testimony is unholiness or ungodliness. But if our corporate testimony is we have been transformed into the image and the likeness of Christ, not by our own efforts, but by the grace of God in this message. And our corporate testimony is we are people looking to the coming of Jesus, and so therefore, in a certain sense, unconcerned about the happiness of this world. If we are advancing in godliness, that's going to conform or be in accord with the message, and that's going to give the message added credibility, legitimacy, and power. Now, church, godliness needs to be on our agenda this year in an intentional, self-conscious, happy way because a godly life is a beautiful life. Let me tell you the last thing. Number three. So we share the message as a matter of personal identity, identification. We share the message uh, as a matter of um, the church's sanctification. Now we want to, number three, see how Paul shares the message for the neighborhood's transformation. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I trust you see by now that Paul has not written a single chapter where he hasn't been meditating on the gospel. And the commitment to the message means sort of weaving the message into our thought about everything, about who we are individually, about our growth in godliness, and here about our mission in the community. Let me, let me break this out in two parts. Number one, don't forget who you were as we think about sharing this message. Notice again in verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were the original haters. All of us, slaves to passion, foolish, it says, disobedient. Now, we should never forget that we had lives before we knew God. 
And we should never forget that those lives were marked by sin and self-destruction. See, remembering this helps us to be humble. And remembering this helps protect us from self-righteousness. And remembering this helps us to be patient with others rather than judgmental. It's not surprising that there's sin in our neighborhood. Anybody surprised by that? There's sin in every neighborhood. Some of ours is on the street, public. Others are on Wall Street, private. But sin is a, a universal ailment, a universal sickness. And I, and I raise that point because I think we want to resist the, the, the simple narrative, the one story about our neighborhood. Our neighborhood ain't just what you see on the news. And what you see on the news in our neighborhood ain't all that different from what's happening on other neighborhoods that ain't reported. But I want to be careful that we don't imbibe either a self-righteousness that comes from forgetting that we were sinners too, still are. And we want to be careful that we don't imbibe the narrative that teaches us to despise our neighbor. As if we're some kind of different creature. Well, we're redeemed, but we're sinners. Now, the second thing to notice here is, while we don't forget who we were, we want to keep the grace of God clear. We want to keep it clear in our own lives. and want to keep it clear in the message that we preach. Notice that our transformation and the transformation of our neighbors is an act of God's grace. See there? God's kindness and love appeared in Jesus Christ. From chapter 2 and chapter 3, you get the sense that God just keeps working to show his goodness, to show his kindness, to show his grace, and he showed it to us supremely in his Son. And when it appeared in Jesus' first coming, it saved us. Now, who did the saving? God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't build up a good track record and a strong resume and present it to God. And God said, wow, I'm impressed. Come to heaven. We were verse 3. And it's while we were, verse 3, that God saved us. God, notice the imagery in these few verses. God found us dirty, but he washed us. God, God found us dead, but he raised us to new life in Christ. God found us poor, but he was so generous toward us that he gave us his Holy Spirit. God found us orphans, so he made us heirs together with Christ. God found us dying in sin, but he gave us eternal life through Christ. This is the message we get to share. This is the message we get to hold for ourselves and give out to the world. It is the perfect message for a broken neighborhood. Because it is the message of hope and transformation that does not require you to be healthy. It simply requires you to be honest. That verse 3 and things like it describe your life. And any person who can be humble enough to admit they're sinners are close to the kingdom of heaven. 
For if we would admit such things honestly and turn from our sin, we will find standing behind us, ready to receive us, a Savior who manifests God's love to us, manifests God's mercy to us, manifests God's kindness and grace to us by giving himself uh, to suffer for our sins in our place. And he will receive us and accept us and wash us and transform us and begin the process of making us as beautiful as he is. That's all you need is a little honesty. And all you need is a little willingness to turn from the sins that you know and turn to the Savior that you've not yet met. And when you turn to Jesus and put your faith in him, you will find forgiveness, a new life, and eternal hope, and the everlasting, never-changing love of God backed by his promise that if you believe in him, the God who never lies will save you from sin, will save you from judgment, will save you from hell, and make you his very own child. This is the God who never lies, and this is what he promised to all of us living in verse 3, but with a little bit of humility, wanting to move to verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. Is that you? Put your faith in Jesus this morning. Trust him as your God and Savior. Hope in his coming and of his salvation and of the resurrection. I must have used the wrong tone of voice because some of y'all are packing up like I'm done. I got four more minutes. <laughs> that was for the persons who are not yet Christians. Now, for us, as a, for us as a church, for us as a church, we want to share the message, right? We want to share the message. I said before that commitment required intentionality, didn't I? Right? And so here's what I want us to do. I want to give us some things for being intentional as we conclude. And you catch all these you can in the notes, but I'm also going to email it to you tomorrow morning so you can meditate on some of this during the week, okay? So if we are committed, and here's the question, what is our plan? We're committed to sharing the message of Jesus. What's our plan for doing so? And I want to give you a list of things to consider. It's broken up in two halves. There are church-organized things, and there are member-organized things. And the purpose of these things is to create a rhythm for us where we can be sharing the gospel on the regular. Every day, every other day, every week, okay? A couple of church-organized things. First of all, there are church-organized special events. Pray for these things, attend these things, share the message at these things. Let me give you five. Number one, the Martin Luther King Day Parade, coming up January 20th. Dennis has been faithful as, as a guy who leads outreach and missions for us and organizing this for us every year, and he keeps stepping up the plan a little bit more every year. We got fancy last year. We had banners. First year, we was just out there cold. <laughs> last year, we were cold with banners, man, walking down the, walking down the street. Dennis said, I ain't going to leave y'all out there that long this year. He talked to Brother Lloyd. He said, hey, Lord, you got a trailer. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get a float. All right. Amen. We ain't got no float yet. We got an idea for a float. So y'all got to show up. <laughs> and so this is what's striking about the MLK Day Parade. Dr. King was a Christian pastor. 
committed in his own way to this message. It's hard to find the message in that parade. You see all kinds of other things. And praise God, it's a community event. But shame on us if we're not there trying to share the message of our neighbor, of, 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 of our Lord to our neighbors. Right? MLK Day Parade. Number two, April 2nd. What's happening there? Job fair, community job fair. Um, sign up, show up, serve, pray. Um, we bring people into that job fair in groups of about 20 or so. Uh, and, and in every group of 20, I share the gospel. Be there with me to follow up with people and say, hey, what do you think about what you heard? Not just to ask about the job fair, but to ask about what they heard regarding the gospel. Uh, July, what happens in July? Three-on-three basketball tournament. Our sister Jamie and Jaleesha have faithfully organized that over the last several years over at Anacostia Park. It's a great place for us to come out. We've had folks share the testimony, share the gospel, get to know our neighbors, try to build some relationship. It's an outreach event. Turkey outreach with Jeremy at Mercy of Christ. That's November. December, we normally have our carols in the hood outing. These are all events. Who laughing at carols in the hood? <laughs> These are all events where we get to share the message now, but these are sort of episodic events. These are like, you know, sort of special once a year kind of things. Now, we need to add to that weekly organized church activities. So, number one, every week, Sunday morning at 9 a.m., we have Sunday school. Come to Sunday school. Bring a friend or a neighbor who's not yet a Christian. Use Sunday school as part of your evangelistic effort. Why? Well, it's a place where we're having lots of conversation, teaching basic Christian truths about Jesus and what he's done and how we live the Christian life. It's the perfect place to involve someone in a conversation about what it means to be a Christian. And it's the perfect place for us to continue to grow in Christ. Now, let me press on us because this is where commitment matters. Our Sunday school should be full with all of you, 9 a.m., Sunday morning. And for everyone whose heart just rolled his eyes, I bet you on Monday you're going to work on time. And Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. And I bet you Friday evening or Saturday when you set that social engagement, you're showing up on time. And, and, and guess what? You're not grumbling about it. Why would we get stingy with God and the time he gives us? Listen, I'm going I'm to give you permission not to come to Sunday school. Two, two people, two persons, two types of persons. One is those who, ha who legitimately have some physical disability, impairment, what have you, where they just can't make it. You should feel no guilt. You should feel no guilt. I'm, I'm not trying to lay wood on your back. Two, these people can skip Sunday school. People who have all of the Bible and all of the fellowship that they need for the week. How many of you all, how many of us, are so full of the Scripture and so constantly in the Bible and so constantly in prayer and so constantly in fellowship with others that we don't need it. And we can sleep in on the Lord and on the church. 
Sunday morning, 9 a.m., beloved, sanctification is happening here. Spiritual growth is happening here. The message of the gospel is being massaged into our hearts. You got brothers who are preparing through the week to come and teach you and to pour out their hearts and their teaching to you because they love you. Don't sleep on that. Don't sleep on that. 9 o'clock Sunday morning. 10 o'clock Sunday morning is the other event every week is our church gathering right here. The reason we preach the way we preach, I don't mean long, I mean, I mean with the gospel in every sermon, that's our desire, is because, number one, we need to hear the gospel as Christians. But, but we want to be the kind of church where you don't need a special revival, you wait on a revival to invite people to so that they might hear the gospel at the revival. No, it's an everyday message that we want to drink in and an everyday message that we want to offer. The easy way for you to do evangelism, to share the message with non-Christian friends and family, is invite them to church. Some will come. Some won't. And with those, we find other ways. But that's the second thing that we organize as a church every week that could be a part of your rhythm of evangelizing. Here's the third thing, coffee and convo on Monday mornings, 9 o'clock. Work will get in the way for some of you, but some of you will have the opportunity to join Dennis and Christella and Abby and a host of folks out near the Methadone Clinic uh, just meeting our neighbors and handing out coffee and praying for them and with them and sharing the gospel with them. That's happening every week. And there's something that's organized that creates a little structure for you to plug into in order to share. Thursdays, prayer walks before Bible study, 6 o'clock. So now afterward, come, knock on doors, meet neighbors, pray with neighbors, share the gospel. These things are going on and other things every week. We should be, if we're committed, plugging into some of these things and creating a rhythm of sharing the gospel. Those are church-organized things. Let me give you some member-organized efforts. Uh, number one, block groups. We currently have two, but we need more. We've got a Ridge Place block group. We've got another block group with Christina and Jamie and some others. Uh, what are block groups? So these are small groups that for us are about evangelism. We're trying to reach our block um, with the gospel. So we're inviting our neighbors and friends who live around us to come and study God's word uh, in our homes uh, in order to make Jesus known. Consider starting a block group or helping someone uh, who's leading a block group to, to reach their neighbors. Second thing, personal evangelism. I think there's too much of that here for me to count. One of the most consistently encouraging things about our church family to me is it seems to me that from the beginning, God has given us a real genuine zeal to do evangelism. There are lots of you doing it in your workplace, lots of you who are doing it with your family and friends. Uh, too many examples to count. Keep doing it. Do it more and more as the day of the Lord approaches. Number three, in terms of member-organized efforts, live in the neighborhood and share the gospel in the neighborhood. Move to Southeast, to Anacostia. Be a everyday presence speaking the message to our neighbors. We, we, don't, we, we praise God. Folks are able to live wherever they're able to live. So this isn't a matter of sin. This is a matter of freedom. I'm exhorting you to use your freedom to come into the neighborhood on mission full time. Share the gospel with your neighbors. More on that in the weeks ahead. Number four, volunteer with community groups, community organizations. Mentor someone at the House D.C., 
chapel services at Central Union Mission. Our brother Vernon and others have gone there preaching and teaching. Chapel services at Cornerstone Schools. Uh, we've had folks do that from time to time. Uh, or start an organization. Nicole and Janine and uh, AC started Girls Link, ministering to girls and sharing the gospel in that context. Um, Jonna with folks, friends of Ketchum Elementary School. Your ability to share the message is not limited to the planning of the leaders. God maybe has given you a vision for some things. Run hard after it. Be committed to it. Finally, pray. Everybody should be praying. Everybody should be praying daily for opportunities and praying that we would be faithful to share the message. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send people into the harvest. Pray that he would give us boldness. Pray, pray, pray. So with this as a menu of options, we should have a goal, listen, of sharing the gospel, every one of us, at least once a week. Sharing the gospel with someone at least once a week. Now, when I first thought about challenging you in that way, I thought, that feels daunting. But then I thought, as part of my discipleship, I was taught that I should take my wife on a date night every week. That feels daunting, too. I'm broke. <laughs> However, I didn't bristle at the goodness of the idea, at the thought of the idea. And we don't do date night every week. But that, I know that that should be an ambition for me. Similarly, I think I should have an ambition, a godly ambition, to talk with someone every week about Jesus and what he's done for us and how they can be made new. So this is about commitment, and I'm challenging you to be committed to share the message this year, to share it with someone every week. You don't have to know who that's going to be every week. Pray that the Lord give you opportunity. Uh, list some people. Go for them. Seek them out the way Christ sought us out. So let me put the commitment this way, and then we'll be done. Commitment number one of the five that I want to encourage us to make is that we be the sent-out servants with the gospel message that we really and truly are. Commit to being the sent out servants with the gospel message that we really and truly are. Now, for that to be a reality, we need to know the difference between a goal and a commitment. A goal is a goal the moment you write it down. A commitment has to be lived out and demonstrated over time. We're calling for commitment, not just goals. May the Lord give us grace. Let's pray together. Father, we're asking you to orient our hearts in this sermon series. Orient our hearts in this message that we've heard today. Now, before we leave, the cares of this world will try to choke out what we've heard. As we leave, the birds of the air will try and swoop down and take the seed. And it may be that for this message, we will face some persecution and we will be tempted to shrink back. Oh, Father, protect in our hearts what you have spoken to each of us individually and all of us together. Shoo the birds away. Protect us from the enemy's attempt to steal the word. Oh, Lord, give us strength and resolve in the midst of persecution. And break us away from worldly passions that would choke out your word. 
so that your word would bear fruit in our lives 30, 60, 100 fold. We want more of you and we want to be more useful to you. And we want to be committed at another level, O oh Lord. We can only do this by your help and your grace. So we ask you, take our lives and use it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.